acrobat, musician, waitress or waiter. These days you're supposed to say servers. <laughs> um, garbage truck personnel, carpenter, sales executive, banker, builder, nurse, physician, pastors. Thank you, Jeff. And across the spectrum, both of preparation and of pay, across a wide spectrum, what do they all have in common? Well, if, if that brain surgeon or that janitor or that teacher or that nurse is a born-again child of God, wherever he or she is, Wherever he or she serves, she and he are on a mission. And the place in which each person functions in their job or job responsibilities is a field of harvest. It is a zone of God-given ministry and mission. Not, not primarily in the functions of their job, which may prohibit them from being vocal about the Lord, but in the function and carrying out of their life in recognizing the sovereign lordship of Jesus over every place where the sole of my foot treads. That in that work, in that job, that a born-again child of God can work wisely and well because of what we find in Colossians chapter 3. When you turn to Colossians 3, we're returning today to our snapshot series in the book of Colossians. We think of various themes here in Colossians as a way to snapshot a larger theme. In other words, it's a window into a larger a larger uh, body of truth that is so enriching in all of our lives, and yet often we may find ourselves missing the significance of that. And, in, and today especially, last Sunday and today I would say, we are looking at what is often called the practical part of the epistle, but I've been wanting to note carefully for us that to say something is practical when the pen of the Apostle Paul turns toward the nitty-gritty reality of our daily lives, like the workplace. How do I deal with my job? How do I deal with the pressure? How do I keep work-life balance in place? How do I cope maybe with an extremely unfavorable working situation? Maybe a place where I'm even feeling or facing persecution. I've told the story before, one of my favorite uh, snapshots into work life, when a seminary student came to Dr. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological Seminary a number of years ago and was kind of bemoaning the fact that in order to work his way through seminary, he had to work at this particular company. And after he got involved in it, he just felt besieged by language and the attitudes and the hostility for and loves in his heart. the only Christian in this in that whole company. And Hendricks looked at him and got that 
familiar twinkle in his eye and said, you mean to tell me that the Lord has entrusted that whole operation to you? And tried to give him a different perspective. Well, if you look at Colossians chapter 3, I hope you find that in your Bible. You see kind of the heart of this passage, this particular theme today, uh, on what it means to be in the workplace successfully, uh, presents us with a, with a very challenging way to look at this meaning of the 17th verse. So look at the 17th verse, and then we're going to move down a few verses to compare how this is being applied. The 17th verse of Colossians 3 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what, what that professor was trying to say to that seminary student is what all of us need to hear at different points in our lives is that wherever God has placed you, the business, the work, the opportunities. In today's economy, we talk about it kind of being a gig economy in many, in many people's lives. They're maybe working several different types of jobs, highly skilled people that are not necessarily in the old style of working for the same company for many years in their lives. And that would apply to many people in our church. And um, those who have a, a variety of of uh, contractual kinds of work. But whatever it may be, to know for sure that it's not by accident that the Lord has put you there and that the connection with the, the dynamic theme that we've seen in this epistle of the supremacy of Christ, not only over the gospel, but the supremacy of Christ over all creation. And we saw that four weeks back when we looked at Colossians 1.15 where the Bible says that by him, through Christ, God created all things. And in him, all things in the cosmos have coherence. They hold together. There is, it's not an abrupt shift in chapter 3 over to these shoe leather issues of life. No, it's the Holy Spirit applying the supremacy of our Savior's conquest over hell, death, and the grave to the reality that we sometimes find ourselves on a Wednesday morning at a desk or in a, in a service cubicle or in a, driving a vehicle or carrying out some task that's not really what we thought we wanted to do with our lives. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced, seen as a pastor, individuals who are in a relatively secure job, but they're chomping at the bit thinking, if I could just quit this job, I could find meaning out here in this other arena. Now, there certainly is a place for changes of vocation and changes of location and changes of, of uh, education and all of those things. But there is also a kind of a restlessness that can come into the soul of anyone, no matter what their job is, that begins to say not just it's normal angst or normal restlessness, but it's also this feeling somehow, if, if I could really be in a, an environment that was what I would choose, I could really follow the Lord more fully. I could really be used of God in a greater way. That thought process is a very tempting track for all of us to go down. And sometimes it leads people to make really unwise choices, to quit a job or to leave a responsibility just because they don't feel like it's spiritual enough or that it offers enough scope for their spiritual aspirations. So with very great tenderness and awareness. Every circumstance is different, of course, and we've just read in Psalm 32, as we read aloud, that God said in Psalm 32, 8, 
I will instruct you. I will guide you. I will lead you in the way that you should go. But what was that warning in Psalm 32, 8? Just be aware that you not become resistant or stubborn. Realize, in other words, there can be a way right, yes, in the nitty-gritty of your situation that you can fulfill verse 17. What is it again? Whatever you do. Could you say it with me this way and personalize it? Whatever I do. Let's say it. Whatever I do, whether in word or deed. And then we could plug employment in that. Wherever I'm employed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then we look the fact that because of this, uh, this section includes three topics of practical application. We looked at the marriage part last week. Very quickly, I want to touch on the child raising part and then spend our focus on this work life experience. But think about it like this, that there is an accent in the book of Colossians not only, again, on the conquest of Christ and his cosmic authority, but also the second part is the sufficiency of Christ in the active, present tense, dynamic experiences of life. Christ, the Lord, is with you. We saw two weeks ago that there's a, a wonderful kind of a triad of understandings when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior in chapter 3 verse 1 when he says if you then be risen with Christ seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God for when Christ who is our life shall appear then you will appear with him in glory we might say then you will accomplish your mission then your task will be fulfilled. But the beauty of that uh, triad, a trio of truths is that Christ is alive in me. I am alive in Christ. And the third in that fourth verse of Colossians 3 is that Christ is my life. Not only is Christ alive in me, not only am I alive in a new way because I am in Christ, but in a daily, practical, realistic experience, I can say, Christ is my life. What does that mean on the job? What does that mean in a difficult day at work? What does that mean under enormous pressure, even in certain workplaces, to maybe compromise your commitment and your loyalty to Jesus? What does that mean? It means Christ is living, dwelling, abiding his living presence is with you, not just in some flowery, poetic way, oh, the Lord is with me. No, his dynamic presence is real, and you can tap in. And this is why, in the text, there is an emphasis in four ways of the active, dynamic presence of Christ from verse 15 through verse 25. And that is, in verse 15, where the apostle says, let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. There is an active peacefulness that his living presence promises you. And maybe you've known it all your life. Maybe you've known it as a follower of Christ for many years, but the fresh vitality of this truth can impact you in a situation where you suddenly find yourself in an emotional storm. Stop and think about the fact that it's not just a kind of peace. It's not just a calmness but it is the very same 
peace that Christ brought those disciples when they were laboring in an emerging storm on the Sea of Galilee and they were battling against the winds and the waves and they finally in desperation cried out, Lord, how can you sleep in the stern of the boat when we're being tossed by waves? And Jesus stood and said to the waves, Peace, be still. And the storm was calmed. But what they took away from that experience was the living presence of the king. Then verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Verse 17, do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then in your Bible, look down at that 23rd verse. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for who? For the Lord, not for human masters. Now, what is so really wonderful about this is that when we think of these very thorny issues like slavery in, in history, we, we are confronted with something that's quite interesting when you put it into the context of our contemporary culture. And that is that God's word to the Colossian believers was so precise, laser-focused, on ex lem knowing what it means in a culture where there is a lot of wrongdoing, there is a lot of injustice. When we look at our culture today and we see the injustices and the things that are corrupt in our governmental system and the things that really many of us find very distressing in the culture today, the same mighty power of the living Christ is being brought to us by his word when he says, and I'm going to put it in slightly different words like this, even if you were a slave, even if you were imprisoned, even if you were impoverished, none of us in this room are. But the word of the Lord is, even if you were in the most dire of circumstances, Christ, living king, is with you. And he would empower you. In other words, this is not a manifesto the documents of the Apostle Paul are not a manifesto for radical social upheaval. It isn't that those issues were not important by any stretch of the imagination. But it is that most of us know this, that when we're in the midst of a multiplicity of decisions in the course of a day and pressures and difficulties and disappointments in our lives, what we need is practical Direct counsel from God. What we need is what Psalm 32, 8 said when God said, I'm with you and I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. And you might say, well, the system is corrupt, Lord. He said, that's, that's, that's not the issue. The issue right now is who are you, where are you, why are you here, and what's inside of you? And what's inside of you is the power and grace of God to bring hope and life and a reflection of the goodness of God to others. And I dare say, friends, whatever job, employment, circumstance you're in, each of you, all of us, can do exactly that. So we saw that this whole chapter, we might say, puts these two great themes of relationships and responsibilities in light of the fact that we've read in chapter 119 that God's exalted manifest power through the Son who reigns and rules 
should be known by every believer so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And immediately in chapter 3, we drop right down into these very practical daily life issues. Issues that can be very meaningful for sure, child raising and parenting, and yet also can be fraught with some stress and some difficulty. They can be thorny areas. Children, obey your parents in the Lord in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Notice the same parallel truth in this child raising and children obeying parents truth as in the employment truth. They have this in common that the emphasis is in everything, in a good job, in a bad job. In, a, in an ideal setting, in a not-so-ideal setting. So just as the word of the Lord would say, part of our task in congregational life is equipping and encouraging and, and empowering children to know what it means to meaningfully obey parents, to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and, again, the flip side, we saw last week there's three pairs of issues here. Husbands, wives as a pair, children, parents as a pair, employers and employees as a pair. And in each case, the emphasis is on the totality of life under the supremacy of our king who says it's not just, it's, you're not living for a distant God. You're walking with the living God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, a father and a mother on their side of that coin can embrace, and just for highlight, two quick thoughts that I think are good takeaways. One, Deuteronomy 6-7 is where the Bible says in those memorable words, after describing the great summary phrase, the, the, the great Shema of the ancient Isra Israelis, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And immediately on the heels of that, the very first Instruction from the lips of Moses after the great Shema is aimed at parents, fathers, and mothers intently engrave these truths in their hearts. Now, the Bible shows us in a very advanced way there what was going to become materialized in the New Testament that the Old Testament was symbolized by those tablets of stone that came down from Mount Sinai, but God's intention was to write his truth in the fleshly tables of the heart. So a parent literally has a God-given joy and opportunity to do what was, a, was the very theme of the new, the new Covenant miracle, and that is rather than just instructions engraved in stone, God was about process of placing very finely, sensitively, tenderly, wisely, shaping the heart of a little child by placing in the fleshly tables of their heart the wondrous truths that your God created you, that the living God designed you unique, that living and learning to obey your parents, learning to respect learning godly principles, learning to walk with a sense of purpose and dignity, that all of those things are, are what Deuteronomy said has to be put within the heart through the key word in Deuteronomy 6-7 was intentionality. And then in Ephesians 6, he speaks of this as the raising children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
And so when you think about it like this, we, we can understand very well that this is, this is one of the ways that all of us can draw from these examples something that helps in daily life. When, Deuter- when Ephesians 6, chapter 4, chapter 6, verse 3 and 4 speaks of this shaping of a child's identity in a similar way to what we find in the employment experience, it is a view of God that once you belong to Christ, there is no place where you're absent from the tender touch of the Holy Spirit's formative guidance. He's there. He's with you. He is bringing into our lives opportunities to be shaped and to grow, even through work and home challenges that sometimes can feel daunting. And so again, a quick, uh, a quick snapshot of the nurture and admonition of the Lord would be helpful to all parents, I think, in that on the nurture side, it's kind of a great, beautiful balance. On the nurture side, it's the affirming and nourishing of each child's soul. It's that cherishing of every child as an individual, loving him or her exactly as he or she is. And then as a wise parent, prayerfully finding the way to help shape their sense of purpose and meaning and dignity and to discern the gift in each child's heart, including the fact that I believe all children, we all know, they are motivated in different ways. And one of the wonderful adventures of parenthood and grandparenthood is to prayerfully find ways to help to identify that motivational key. That motivational key. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm teaching, having the joy, it's one of my great joys of teaching little ones to ride bicycles. And I've noticed something interesting with siblings, that two different siblings can respond very differently to the challenge of learning to balance the bicycle. And uh, so I'm, I'm getting a lot of exercise running along one of those right, right now, even in these recent weeks. On the ad- admonition side, there is applying wise discipline swiftly. Many parents today are so concerned about the, um, the dangers of abuse, which are, of course, very real and very tragic and very harsh. And yet there's a danger in our culture today that parents are overreacting against the fear of, of a child uh, being in any way harmed by not being swift enough to to use wise discipline. And when we become lax or we become careless or we become derelict in our duty to actually discipline children in a wise and thoughtful and sensitive way, we are opening the door to patterns that can become very hurtful to that child's inner identity. Proverbs 23, 13 says that that it, it is a foolish thing to leave a child to himself or herself without discipline. Discipline is a good, healthy part of that shaping. And then, of course, really, the essential goal of discipline is to actively train a little one at all their various ages, of course, in an age-appropriate way, to show respect, to be obedient, and to be responsive to ultimately to the goodness of God. And even in practical issues like manners, showing courtesy, saying thank you, giving eye contact to individuals in communication, and all of those other aspects of growing, that's a part of that shaping. And so when we think of it in parenting as we did in marriage, and then we think of it in the life of the workplace as employees, we are all, we're all being given by God ingredients in Colossians chapter 3 to fulfill a particular kind of love. 
We, we closed last week by singing that song, This is my commandment that you love one another. That agape love is a God-given principle of self-sacrificial love. And the thing that distinguishes agape is that it is a love that is aimed at the value of the one who is being loved. It's not the person loving trying to get fulfillment by thinking, I'm a loving person. No, it is a motivation to sacrifice and find the key for that person that we love. It's what God did in the gospel when we read that God so loved the world that he gave. He loved this sin-cursed planet and every human being there in a way that models for us a principled kind of love. Philippians 1.9 puts it this way, I pray, read this aloud with me as a prayer, and let's pray it uh, together as in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the first person plural and make it personal for us together that our love, could we do that? Let's pray that, say that prayer. That our love may abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight. That's why... Colossians 3 talks about marriages, children, and the employment place. How do we do this? How do we have a love that continues to grow with a kind of a, of a, of a sharp insight on what matters most? Well, the text says it so clearly. Whatever you do, verse 23, work heartily as for who? For the Lord. Like... My, my, you mean the Lord is my boss? Exactly. You mean that rat, I mean, excuse me, that, <laughs> or that rat, that person I work for. You mean this somebody that you don't find very easy to work for or work with? I hope that's not the case, but for some people it is. That, that overbearing uh, taskmaster, that uh, unreasonable do- supervisor, tuned out maybe, irresponsible. Some supervisors are irresponsible. Not so much overbearing, but irresponsible. And that makes the responsible employee's job ten times more difficult because they're working under somebody who's not taking nearly the responsibility that they are. That's a problem, isn't it? And yet in all of those circumstances in the workplace that we find, we may find at times unpleasant, even distressing, there is an abiding fact that Colossians 3.23 says that As a born-again, redeemed child of God, you can know that everything you do in the workplace, every place you go, that you're living out an awareness that truly the Lord Jesus emphasized four times in this paragraph. The peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of the Lord Jesus. Here, know that you are serving the Lord Christ. Look at the very end of that 24th verse in Colossians 3. In the NIV, it completes it as one sentence, if you have the NIV today. It says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. No, it's not Northrop Grumman. No, it's not Target or Walmart. No, it's not Carroll County Public Schools. No, it's not Norbrakes. No, it's not the Ford Motor Company or, or a, a, some other employer. No, it is the Lord Christ that you're serving. 
What a liberating thing it is to go to work every day and realize that when you grasp this as a kind of a disciple, I think, I think of it as a principle of discipleship, then we can make a very important distinction that's in the very heart of that uh, 23rd verse, and that is where it says, obey, where you have to carry out your duties, not with eye service as men pleasers. So the carrying out of my duty as an employee Primarily, yes, I follow instructions of an employer, but over and above that, it's like, I, I, think, I think of it like this. I, I went to pick up a patient at University Hospital the other day, and I'd, I'd never seen this improvement at University Hospital until, the, until this week, and I, just, I was struck by it. I'm walking in the mezzanine, and when you look straight up, when they remodeled that whole mezzanine there, they put windows in the ceiling. And I just I kept looking up as I was going to radiology and thinking, I like this. I like architecture with windows in the ceiling. On a beautiful summer day, that light is streaming in. We might say a Christian going to work is like that. A Christian going to work says, I'm under the structure of this employer, this company or this business or this governmental institution or agency, I'm under that structure physically, but God has put windows in the ceiling and his light, the sovereign grace and glory and power of God reminds me that I serve the Lord Christ. I always winced these days, Becky and I have winced for years when she was teaching public school, and we would hear these comments from, that would come third-hand from certain guidance counselors to students, try to find what your passion is in life. Now, I understand how that's intended, and some of us might say that in a certain context, so I want to be fair. But I think in our culture, we've overdone this word passion to the point that we feel like that the whole purpose for young people is to try to find something they're passionate about. Passionate. And yet if you put them in a job and you say you, you pick up every trash can, you clean every toilet, you mop every floor in about two and a half hours, and then we're going to pick you up and take you out to another task, and then we're going to go buy you a hamburger and take you home. It, for a lot of people, they'd think that's cruel. They would feel that somehow you're violating their, their innate need if you're not giving them a job they're passionate about. Well, the truth is, I've lived long enough, and most of us here have lived long enough to know there's a lot of our days on our jobs that we're not exactly passionate about what we're doing at work every day. And if we thought that it was supposed to be a passion adventure, we're going to be sorely disappointed. What I suggest to you is a far better goal for young people than to counsel them to find something they're passionate about is encourage them to take every opportunity that life sends their way to learn valuable skills, to get engaged in developing their capacities, not just the thing they love to do, that usually comes easy, but more important, work on abilities to do things you don't like to do. Because guess what? A high percentage of work life is going to be doing things I didn't choose to do. And that's true, that is true in my life as a pastor. 
80% of what I do is not what I would have chosen to do because it's part of the functioning of, of, of administration and those kinds of things. But pastoring is my passion, but I don't get to do it all the time. Do, do, does that make sense? We have, to, we have to really distinguish that and understand that there's a lot of places in life that we don't get to do just what we want to do. So I, I want to summarize this, and I hope it's a good takeaway for you. Far better than being passionate is an obedient attitude. This in Colossians 3:23 to 24 is like this. This is labor for an audience of one. And if it's labor for an audience of one, oh how good that can be. I've mowed lawns. I've thrown newspapers on a little downtown street in North Carolina, 11-year-old job. I've washed dishes in a pizza shop. I've worked for two different McDonald's. I was human resources manager for a small manufacturing firm in Mississippi. I did real estate. I have, I have worked in, uh, in, on a roofing crew. I've worked on a painting crew. Uh, I drove for a, a living for a while. I was a chauffeur for a retired Navy admiral in Pensacola who had had a stroke and had lost his speech, but otherwise he was a completely functional person, and, and uh, his wife paid me to come and get him up every morning, get the old admiral, uh, the former admiral up, help him get showered and dressed and shaved and changed, and we'd get in his car, and he couldn't use words, but he would point me the way, mm, 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 here, mm, 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 and he would point me on journeys that I took him all across the Gulf Coast, and we would stop and have lunch together, and, and by the time I'd finished serving that retired admiral, I had a feeling not only that I was a pretty good chauffeur, but I also had the feeling that I knew this man who could not say one word in normal speech. Now, all of those jobs and many others in my life added something to me, and yet virtually none of those jobs would I have chosen if I was just looking for my passion. <laughs> this is why... This is why this eye service thing is so important. Not, not doing it to please men, he said, but what? Because the Lord is the one you serve. Paul in Colossians 3, 23 and 24 is echoing Jesus in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said it like this, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. Now let's pause. Jesus wasn't saying not to pray. He wasn't telling us not to pray in a public place, no. There's many examples of public prayer in the Bible. So Jesus was not, as some people foolishly imply, that Jesus was saying you should never pray in public. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you should never give in an offering and let somebody else see that you put $50 in an offering. That's not what he, he's not saying. That what, what is he saying in Matthew 6? He's saying don't let it be your motive, whether it's prayer, whether it's giving, whether it's giving alms, whether it's fasting, whether it is... Any act of love and mercy, let your motive be you don't care who sees and you don't care who doesn't see because it is labor for an audience of, shout it out. Now, the heart of this before we close today, I think in the text itself, the heart of this is so cool. It, it, we just got to get this. In the text, it says, verse 23, do it your work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. It's, it's okay, so it's a different way of saying what is your motive? What's motivating you? 
What is behind your desire, let's say, to excel in your job? And if the motive, he says, is heartily as unto the Lord, we might then think of it like this. The actual text translates well into English, and it's why many modern translations give us these words. It translates well into the word heartily, or wholeheartedly, we might say. But it's intriguing that the actual Greek phrase does not use the word heart. The actual Greek phrase uses the word psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. It's the phrase from which we get the word psychology. And it has a prefix ek, E-K, which means to come out of, to come out of the middle of it. And the use of that term psyche is often translated in the Bible as soul. What shall a man give in place for his soul? For whoever would love his suke, his life, in this world will lose it. But whoever loses his suke, his life, his soul life, whoever gives away his personal prerogatives, we might use the word our total self-life. And it is intriguing that when Colossians 3.23 calls us to do our work as employees for the glory of God, it's not only saying out of the heart, that's true, it's also saying out of your mind. Give it your best, in other words. Put your soul into it. Why? Even what if it's a bad employer? What if it's a lousy boss? What if she's completely crazy? (laughs) Or he, or whatever, right? We've all worked for some good bosses and bad bosses. I've worked for what I've I've had some wonderful employers in my life. I could tell you about them, enriched my life. But I've had some that were, let me say, made you glad when five fifteen rolled around, right? So so he's saying heartily, wholeheartedly means that my motive is not just for what pleases me, but but. I can put my energies into something that enriches other people, and as a result, I find out finally something. Look at that 25th verse of this chapter. I find out something about God that we could easily miss when we leave this chapter behind. And and it is this, that look at verse 25, because if if we miss this, we'll miss a wonderful balancing factor in all three of these topics, as we wrap it up, think about this. We talked about marriage last week, and we know, we know, don't we, that marriages are not ideal, and some people get terribly hurt in marriages. Can we just be bluntly honest about this? Some people get terribly hurt in marriages. We talked last week about the beautiful model of marriage, right? But somebody might say, well, pastor, I heard your message about marriage, and, and now I'm thinking, yeah, but what about me, or what about the situation with my friend? And, and then the same would be true with parents and children. There's beautiful examples of how to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but how many of you know there's some homes that are not very happy? May I see your hand? Employers and employees, masters and slaves. Some potential for some very huge things to go wrong there, right? Now look at verse 25. This verse, this chapter ends on this amazing insight into the character of God, and it governs all three of those areas. Marriage in the family, 
employment, the workplace, even the very thorny and historic problems of slavery and people working as indentured servants. What does it say in verse 25? I'm going to read to you from the Amplified Bible here, verse 25. With God, there is no partiality. No matter what one's position may be, either servant or master. Let me say that again. With God, there's no partiality. Whether the person is a servant or a master. Whether they're a husband or a wife. The point is what? Every single human being is accountable to Almighty God. And a child of God knows if I'm in a bad situation, if I'm in a hurtful situation, if I'm actively being hurt right now, or I have a loved one that's being hurt, I can go to my Heavenly Father and I can say, Lord God, I know in you is the hope of deliverance and freedom and righting these wrongs. Let me finish the text from the Amplified Bible. With God, there's no partiality, no matter what one's position may be, either servant or master. Now read that next part with me. He who deals wrongfully will reap the fruit of his actions. Would you read it again, please? He who deals wrongfully will reap the fruit of his actions and will be punished for his wrongdoing. How powerful it is to know that because if you're in any kind of employment situation that's not ideal or is troubling or distressing your soul, then you can do exactly what it says here with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord because this energy, this energy comes from the depths of your soul for the glory of God. Parenting, loving spouse, comforting a person who's suffered from an abusive marriage or an abusive, abusive domestic relationship, suffering and ministering to somebody who's suffered from some injustice in the workplace or in their home or in their community. And all of those things come under this banner of knowing the child of God draws energy from his or her soul to love God, to honor God, and to be a solution oriented child of God. Why? Because it's an energy for labor for an audience of one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that today we could say in a new way, maybe in a way that we haven't said in a long time, I give my heart's expectations back to you. May we say today with Psalm 62, 5, my soul waits for God alone. From him comes my expectation. Lord, I know there are people, and praise God, there are people that have the opportunity to make very good income from what they're most passionate about. Those people may be out there, but I, I, I suspect that most of us have found that uh, that the monetary reward of what we actually love the most in life is usually not directly connected. And there's a lot of labor, there's a lot of even drudgery, there's a lot of duty, there's a lot of tasks that are not what we would be on the top of our passion list. So Lord, give us grace to do exactly what this wonderful truth says with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord 
Let us serve the Lord Christ. Amen.